You are experiencing the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. It is September 25th, 2023, and welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty, where we are bringing you the people and the organizations fighting for liberty around the country and in your region. Um, the hopes that will inspire you to do the same. Um, and you can find a lot of our stuff too online if you want to go check out more of that as well. But today we have a special guest for you. It is Stephen Greenhut. Uh, he is the Western Regional Director of the R Street Institute, which is a think tank promoting liberty. He's also uh, on the Southern California Editorial Board. He's a longtime columnist newsman, I guess. And uh, uh, and he is also the uh, Pacific uh, Research Institute uh, City or Free City Center. Uh, you're the director for that, uh, right, Stephen? I, I think I yep. missed that on the notes there. But um, yeah, so we've got him to talk to, uh, and we're going to find out all kinds of stuff about sort of what's been going on in, in both journalism and some of the problems with our public pension systems and our unions. Uh, so we'll dive into those issues. But before we get into that, let me introduce you to the rest of our panel. In our lower left-hand corner, we have Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in Liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. In my lower right-hand corner we have Stephen Greenhut who I've just introduced and my name is Jason McPhee and I'll be your host today. Um, so Stephen um, before we get to anything specific let me uh, James our invisible hand can you bring up the visual I want to bring up Stephen's website so here is the R Street Institute so it's free markets free solutions um, and Stephen's been thinking about this stuff a long time and so Stephen tell us a little bit about what it is the R Street Institute does and and what it is that uh, um, you do there as well. Yeah, our, our Street Institute, it's a uh, free market think tank uh, based in Washington, D.C., and I'm the Western director, so I, I uh, handle issues in the Western states. So, um, you know, they, they uh, do a lot of work, at kind of a pragmatic free market think tank. We're trying to, uh, to affect actual policy change. So uh, we do work in uh, in the technology policy, often opposing a lot of these proposals to uh, regulate tech companies, uh, harm reduction, uh, you know, and tobacco harm reduction. I mean, the state of California has uh, banned flavored tobacco, and we've kind of we we point out uh, we do a lot of research on how um, reduced harm products like vaping and things are are uh, it's better than. They're 95% safer than uh, combustible cigarettes. So the goal of public policy should not be this kind of puritanism uh, that, that tries to promote abstinence and things, but rather allows people to make better choices. Um, so we do uh, you know, occupational licensing reform, um, different uh, commercial freedom type issues. So we're just trying to move the needle as much as we can um, and in, in the Western states, obviously, uh, housing work, I do a lot of housing work, uh, trying to uh, promote housing, uh, you know, construction, additional construction of housing, increase the supply, uh, deal with some of these regulations that make it hard to uh, build housing and, and lead to our, our, our housing uh, crisis here in the state. So we're trying to uh, promote ideas that might actually take place. I mean, there's a in the liberty movement, there are a lot of roles that can be played. You know, one of the roles is to be more philosophical. And I do that, I think, to some degree as a, as a writer. But there's also a role for trying to uh, affect practical reform. 
and that's what uh, you know. That's what our street does. And then, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, uh, I, I'm on the Southern California News Group editorial board, so I write uh, columns and I weekly column. I write uh, unsigned editorials. I first came to California in the uh, late '90s and '98. I worked for the Lima News, which was a newspaper in uh, Lima, Ohio, big metropolis. And then I got a job at the Orange County Register, which was at the time part of the Freedom Chain, Freedom Communications, and they had a, a thirty-some newspapers that that uh, the Hoyles family, they they uh, libertarians, great people, and they owned a chain of newspapers and that were dedicated to to promoting liberty, long uh, long tradition of liberty at the newspaper group. I mean, they've there's since been bankruptcies, and they're the new Southern California News Group is uh, the the 11 newspapers I write for are not uh, no longer part of uh, Freedom Communications. It's a different uh, it's a different news group, but they've they've kept up the the old traditions of libertarianism. And then at the uh, Pacific Research Institute's uh, Free City Center, they're a, they're a uh, a think tank now based in the uh, Pasadena area, uh, but they've they're they're an old, a long-standing uh, think tank, and I do a, something called the Free City Center, which promotes market-based solutions to our urban problems. And I I think uh, you know what we see everywhere, especially in California, is there's always a, a attempt to promote a government solution, rarely any effort to look at how poorly those solutions have fared. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're trying to come up with good ideas, not just bashing cities. That's not I, I, I like cities and uh, we're, we're not just uh, writing articles about how miserable things have gotten in San Francisco. We're writing it. You know, we're writing about things that that might actually help make it a better city and make other cities uh, better places, more livable, safer, cleaner. And and it's it's meant to be, uh, you know, pr productive. So I, in my old age, I used to be in my young age, I used to be more of a bomb thrower. Uh, but in my old age, I'm more of a uh, let's let's seek out practical solutions. Um, you know, at, at uh, yeah, on my old days at the Orange County Register editorial board, I don't know if you've heard of Alan Bach. He's, he's uh, he passed away a few years ago, but he was he was always this optimist. And uh, he always figured everyone was, he was a great guy. Everyone was just this close to actually being a libertarian. And in my old age, I, I, I'm, I'm more, more along the lines of, of what Alan did, trying to promote ideas, trying to win people over uh, with, with, with good ideas. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes things do, you know, do move in a good direction. And, uh, and, and, yeah, it's so you build the foundation for liberty, and then when the opportunity arises, the ideas are out there, and maybe you know someone will will be listening. And and I also want to before we go further, just uh, we should we should be fairly optimistic. I mean, if we look at uh, look at the conditions of life now, uh, they're much better than they had been. So you know, there's progress. There's two steps forward, two steps back, but. Uh, there's there's progress in some areas. Well, you, you know, so, I noticed you, you did mention real quickly on, uh, before that uh, when the opportunity presents, well, certainly California has given us a lot of opportunities to try and improve well, things, right? I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> all the different well, things we're well, doing wrong. <laughs> well, well, you know, let me, can I give an example? I mean, uh, back when, when I first came to um, 
Southern California, and uh, which was uh, we were in a small city in Ohio. My wife was kind of shocked by it. I accepted the job without discussing it with her. And she's like, "What do you mean we're moving to Southern California?" I'm like. Aren't we going to discuss this? My God. You sound like a central planner in your marriage. <laughs> and she was all right with it. But but it just seemed that I've always wanted to come out here. But when we came out here, one of the first issues I um, wrote about were uh, redevelopment agencies. And those were um, um, almost every city had one. Uh, it was a s- little local centrally planning agencies that um, used tax increment financing uh, to so-called re- redevelop areas, but it just became a tax grab scheme that cities used and to subsidize big box stores and shopping malls and movie theaters and auto malls and uh, hotels uh, as a way to get bed taxes and, and sales taxes, really distorted development, especially in Southern California. And also these agencies uh, misused eminent domain in fact, my first book was called Abuse of Power. It was back in 04, which was about uh, abuses of eminent domain for private use, taking it not just to build a road, but taking a property. Cities would take a property from uh, private owners and give it to a developer who would then uh, build something that the city planners wanted, and that would bring in tax revenue. And eminent domain was abused wi- abused wildly. Uh, so anyway, it those agencies, they were really uh, entrenched in in the state. And uh, they had the California Redevelopment Association representing them and the League of California Cities. And and redevelopment was a thing and it wasn't going anywhere. And I remember um, there were quite a few people, some of I was a part of a movement that was was pointing out the uh, uh, the abuses um, we saw in the key, Supreme Court's Kelo decision ultimately uh, pointed out those uh, a lot of those abuses at, on a nationwide level. And um, uh, people like Chris Norby, he was a, a libertarian, but a Republican assembly member, county supervisor in Orange County, was active in, uh, in, in building the case against redevelopment agencies. Anyway, sure enough, uh, the timing was right in 2011. California faced a, what was it, like a $30 billion budget deficit, and Jerry Brown need, needed the money. And uh, redevelopment agencies, because they, the state had to backfill the tax revenues that were taken from public schools and other traditional services, uh, there was there was like a, quite a bit of money uh, that was was being diverted, and, and, and Brown needed the money, so he shut down redevelopment agencies. And uh, the legislature passed the law. Brown signed it. It was he. He led the charge. Uh, the state supreme court upheld it. And you know what? Redevelopment agencies went away. And so uh, it, I have pe- friends of mine who say, "Yeah, but Jerry Brown didn't do it for the right reasons." And I'm like, I don't care what his reasons were. He did the right thing. Mm. So you know, if somebody wants to give me a million dollars just to spite their spouse, I'll take it. Right? I mean, if they want to do something that. Uh, for the wrong reasons, I don't care. And but but in it, it, it's so, funny so, too when you mentioned what well, was just yeah. gonna say when you mentioned Jerry Brown and the wrong reasons. I remember specifically when he pushed the latest push in minimum wage, 
And he literally just said he was doing it for the wrong reasons. He says, I, I know there's a lot of economists who, who say this stuff won't work, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, so anyway he said yeah, that yeah, in yeah, the yeah. press conference. Well, <laughs> that's, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, Brown was an interesting character. I, I like him. Um, he did some good things. He did some uh, terrible things. But re eliminating redevelopment was uh, was was an amazing uh, thing. It did advance liberty because it, uh, although our state never, um, we never reformed our eminent domain laws like many other states did after the Kelo decision. Um, it removed by removing redevelopment. It removed the financial incentive uh, to to use eminent domain as frequently it was done before. And so, so that was a good thing. And then there have been efforts to uh, bring it back, but they've they've basically they've failed. And uh, you know, the time has passed, and 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 that was an advancement liberty. And I, I like to bring that up as an example because it shows that even when it seems really hopeless, I, I remember me meeting in these uh, hotels with activists who would share their horrible stories. Um, you know, one of them, uh, I was standing next to Tom McClintock, uh, who, um, uh, and we get, we both stood up and gave Maxine Waters a standing ovation because on the one, that one issue, she was really good because she talked about what uh, LAUSD did in, in South Central Los Angeles um, in, in, in abusing eminent domain. So I'm, yeah, so you build you build the foundation and then maybe the time will be right and you'll you'll see uh you'll see, it's like a dam uh dam break right it all builds up and then you know so so that's why we do this uh, not because uh, so, uh, so Stephen, um you you raised the um, the kilo decision which which i believe was decided in the late 1990s which to me was a big anti anti property rights decision quite frankly but I, I, I don't know how you feel about the decision itself. But but the question I really have, does the R Institute in in terms of promoting liberty, does he does the R um does the R Institute do they get involved in actual litigation? Uh no, we don't. R Street Institute. Uh yeah, Kilo was a little later than that, but um it was like two thousand and five, I think. Because but but anyway, yeah, it was a terrible oh, was, okay. decision. Yeah, it was a terrible decision. But uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's dissent was brilliant. And, yes, I remember um, and, that. Yes, and then the uh, the the justices essentially invited, encouraged states to pass laws reforming eminent domain, and most of them did. California, the the law that we passed was ultimately written by uh, supporters of redevelopment, which just goes to show. Uh, so we never we never did that. But the decision, um, yeah, the de it was a terrible decision, but it, it certainly spotlighted um, the abuses of eminent domain. It it, it centered on a, uh, was it a Pfizer proposal in uh, New London, Connecticut? Uh, they were going to build a, a, some sort of headquarters yes. and would have eliminated the Fort Trumbull neighborhood and they knocked down the neighborhood and then uh, nothing ever. I don't think anything's ever been built since. And, and I've covered those. Um, Throughout California, mostly Southern California, some of these redevelopment projects, um, and, and and my role at the you know Orange County Register editorial board back then, when I used to work full time for them, uh, we 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 really uh, uh, 
attack some of these proposals. There was one that would have uh, in a garden grove that would have obliterated a middle-class neighborhood to build for the city, to build a theme park on spec to compete with the Disneyland up the road. There were some really crazy things. There were some really crazy ideas. I mean, you don't want government to, when government serves as a central planner, it's amazing the stupidity and the destruction that, that you'll get. I mean, downtown Anaheim, and, and I'm sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, so I'll, I'll stop quickly. But downtown Anaheim used to have the one of the most beautiful downtown in Southern California. And the redevelopment agency in the 70s pretty much uh, bulldozed it. So you don't want government officials to have that kind of power. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much the lesson on on eminent domain that I learned. You see, but this, but this, this is the um, the problem, and this uh, to me was the big the big problem with the kilo decision. But gov- it, it, the kilo decision to me gave uh, central planners even more power to pick winners and losers. And we know the government is only good at producing one thing, which is misery. That's all they do. They're, they're very good at that. But which which raises which raises the the, the question though. How do we keep government in its assigned role? I mean, there are essential things that the government must do. I would, I would agree to that. But how do we keep them to its constitutional duty with, without them finding, always finding innovative ways to get beyond what is required of them in, in terms of limiting their scope in our lives? I mean that that's the eternal question, isn't it? I mean it's, <laughs> Well at least at least let me hear your perspective on it. At least I have it somewhere. So yeah, I, I mean that's what we're doing. that's what this is all about. Fight you know, fighting the battles uh in, in it, wherever we can and um and staying focused. Yeah, so on the eminent domain issue, uh you pushed for uh you know, you you, you make a push in the courts and in the and there are all sorts of efforts and uh, there's no simple solution. It's this eternal vigilance. And, um, and, uh, just, and that's true in, on every area. I mean, in, uh, in uh, uh, policing with trying to rein in some of these, uh, uh, you know, qualified immunity, there's so many battles to fight. And, um, I, you know, part part of the battle is to to inform people of the value of liberty, because if if people really value liberty, it's it's harder for government to take uh, control over things it ought not to do. And, uh, you know, I, I I'm not an I'm not an anarcho capitalist. I, I believe there is a role for government. I mean, whenever whenever I talk to you, know, it's just a, it should be very limited whenever I talk to people who want to eliminate government entirely not that that's you know ever going to happen i mean that's that's great for i don't know the after hours uh a cocktail hour at the libertarian party convention maybe we can talk about it it's fun <laughs> to talk about but uh you know they always come up with these convoluted ways to replace what government does with things that basically just replicate what government does so i've just got that point <laughs> right i mean it, well, if somebody if somebody breaks into your house and uh, commits a crime against you, at some point you have to use some level of force to restrain them. So yes. you could come up with all sorts of complex ways, and then it always ends up coming back to calling the police, or, or <laughs> you know, right? I mean, you have to. Have, so so we could come up with all sorts of 
you know, private alternatives, but ultimately you still have to be able to uh, detain the person that's uh, trying to kill you. So I, you know, I, I, so I don't worry as much about, I think there's a vast amount of reform that's needed on these fundamental services. I've written a ton about police abuse. I've covered a lot of cases in Southern California and we'll talk, I think a little later about pensions and how, you know, law enforcement and firefighters they've basically and other other government uh um government uh groups i mean they basically uh, exist uh for you know one one city manager said you know we're we're a pension provider that provides a few public services on the side so vanishingly um, few <laughs> yeah so uh yeah I, it's 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 crazy so all these even the things that government ought to be doing or or at least uh typically we accept is are more likely to accept should be doing those things need to be reformed uh but then it's doing all these other things that it it, it doesn't it shouldn't be doing at all so um it's 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 a yeah it's not an easy well, let me ask. Let me ask this. Let me hold on a second, Leon. I because we got to get to a few other things before we transition to the other stuff. So let me just get to the background real quick, and then we'll get you jumping back in on this. But um, James, can you pull up the map real quick? We've been talking about California, and so I just want to give our viewers a sense of where we're at. And I also wanted to get, uh, ask Stephen a little more about his background too, since uh, you know we're talking about California. So uh, this is Cato's Liberty Map, and uh, we try and show our viewers this just to give them a sense. Of, of what we're talking about when we talk about the authoritarian levels of government that's going on in different places. And so here we have California. And California, of course, is no surprise to most of us, especially those of us who live here, is one of the least free states uh, uh, of all. In fact, I'm shocked that we're only number 48. <laughs> we always New Jersey and Illinois to bail us out. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and of course, it's a state that is, is much more leans Democrat than Republicans. Uh, you know, we get a few libertarians in local offices, but we can't really, you know, we haven't been able to breach that state level uh, on anything. But as you can see here, it's almost all uh, blue, uh, certainly uh, uh, Democrat senators. It's been that way for the last 20, 30 years, roughly. Um, we've, I think it's been at least 20 years since we've had a Republican governor in the state. So, um, yeah, and uh, so, so that's uh, kind of, and of course, all the state offices too, it's almost all blue so that's that's kind of what we're dealing with but you know you talked about moving here so you haven't lived here your whole life were you liberty oriented when you moved here or did living in california make you a liberty oriented person <laughs> i mean what was it that rang your liberty bell on a lot of these issues yeah i mean i grew up in uh, near philadelphia and it's been a long time and you know, i was a young young liberal democrat and i moved to washington dc for college and uh became caught up in the, the, the Reagan movement and became more of a, a conservative and then um, moved when ultimately I ended up at the newspaper, the Lima News in Ohio, which is the Freedom Communications uh, newspaper. And I was, you know, very liberty oriented at that point. And then that really helped focus my thinking, you know, working for a libertarian newspaper and having to write editorials and columns and 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 it really honed my thinking about liberty. And then when I came out to uh, you know Southern California, yeah, I was uh, I, I certainly had a pretty well developed uh, uh, libertarian viewpoint. Um, 
and um, so uh, yeah. So when when I got here, I, I I still wanted to come here. I mean, I, I uh, it, it, it's it's a beautiful state. I, I love it. I've I've since been to I've been to every one of, every one of the fifty eight counties, every city or town of any note. I've I've I love the state. It's great, and and I think that. Uh, one of the things about being in California, whenever you see a, a negative list of something, it's real easy. You just go to the bottom and the rankings. There are all sorts of rankings, you know, on anything, home affordability, freedom, you know, whatever. You go to the bottom and there's there's California. And then, you know, our Democratic friends like to say, yeah, but we're the fifth largest economy in the world. And they obviously never learn the word despite. You know, it's such <laughs> despite everything. Yeah, they're working on eroding now. <laughs> yeah, it's still it's still a great state despite all their efforts to make it less so. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I've been here. I've I've been here long enough now to have watched. Uh, you know, when I got here, we still had uh, uh, still had a Republican governor. Republicans could still occasionally win um, statewide office. And um, uh, anyway, uh, it, it's that's changed quite a bit. And um, I, I was looking at the statewide, um, you know, the statewide vote count from the last election, and it's pretty much in all statewide offices. It's like 60, 40 Democrats. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're at the point where the Republicans, not that Republicans, you know, you guys are libertarians, <laughs> but Republicans aren't exactly great shakes. But um, uh, they, they they're they're not in favor of liberty in their own areas, right? They're in favor of it, except when they're not. And uh, but still, we it's nice to have a two party state. And if you got the Republican uh, name, the only non Democrat who's come close was uh, I think Steve Poisoner ran for insurance commissioner again, and he came very close as a not no party preference. Um, not that he was a great insurance commissioner in the past, but, you know, anyway, it's just just the way it is. So um, and um, you mentioned some libertarians at the local level. I'm, I'm not sure of many that even win local seats. I know Jeff Hewitt it was the Riverside County supervisor, and that's a pretty that was a pretty uh, high level elected official position for a libertarian. And and when he was uh, mayor of uh Calamesa, he helped uh, institute a pretty significant um, firefighting reform, um, and then and then it was uh, Republicans who who couldn't stand that, and they authored bills to make sure it couldn't happen anywhere else statewide. Republicans because of their alliance with the p- public safety unions, so um, so we can't really rely on Republicans, can we? <laughs> well, you know, and, and as far as those offices go, that's exactly like what I'm talking about. They, these things like city council member, mayor, and some of these smaller areas and stuff. Because we've interviewed um, a, at least one on our show from Southern California area. Uh, and, of course, across the country, we've been interviewing a lot of people from different, uh, you know, local offices. But, um, yeah, that's that's all we're seeing, obviously. In, 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 uh, and they're not winning, are they? I mean, not many. Well, occasionally there are. There, there, there's a few. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, you know, we not, not so much in California. There's about five or six, but you can actually go to the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party's website, and they have a 
um, uh, uh, they have a link for elected officials. And so you can actually find all the people who declare themselves as libertarians and who have actually won local offices and stuff. And so that's actually, uh, as a, uh, a little secret, that's how I get some of our guests. On the show. <laughs> there is, there is a woman, there was a woman who was a, uh, who was a libertarian who was a mayor. Of, I forgot what city it was here, here in California. Um, well, yeah, no, no, no. We, we, we interviewed her. I, I'd have to look it up again real quick because yeah. it's been a while. It's been about a year since we interviewed her. Yes. But uh, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, so there's a few. I felt like it was almost like a unicorn because she they, they had a city council of five people and she had convinced uh, a couple others to switch over to libertarian. And then they summarily got rejected in the next election. <laughs> she told me. I remember when I used to Just a second. Let me break in yeah. for time. Uh, if uh, you're watching us on public access uh we've got to go uh but you can catch the rest of this conversation on uh our uh, other websites uh rumble uh the uh, spotify youtube and uh facebook uh just look up knuckleheadsofliberty.com and you can find the rest of this conversation and a lot of others too uh so uh join us there okay back to the show <laughs> go ahead Stephen. oh i when i used to go to libertarian events remember they'd always they'd bring out the people the elected officials and it was always something like you know dog catcher and it was very it was waterboard i mean i'm not saying these don't have the role but but uh as an elected uh movement it uh, you know there hasn't been a lot of headway although i do think with uh um it, city council elections being technically nonpartisan. We know that's just tech, a technicality. The parties always get involved in them, but still there, it does offer an opportunity, but um, it, it takes, it takes hard work. And I, I do feel like a, a lot of people from any third party, uh, they just, there's a certain element that likes to put their name on the ballot, but you know, it's, it's harder to go from there to actually, uh, knocking on every door. I remember one city council member uh, who, who won um, years ago in Southern California, he knocked on every door in this, our city of 50 some thousand people. And, and that's hard work. I wouldn't want to do it. Um, but he won, uh, you know, so, so it's, it's uh, retail politics is still important. Well, a lot of these people too, who are getting elected, they're in very small areas. So, uh, but I, I did want to start a, a push us on toward uh, one of the other topics too sure. because we definitely want to hit our, our discussions on unions and stuff but because we have you on the show and you've been a journalist I didn't want to uh, let it go without asking you um, we, we've been seeing this erosion of I guess liberty values in journalism and I, it's refreshing to hear you talk about you're part of a news group that really pushes that but um, a, a, what's your perspective on this uh, as a journalist seeing uh, all of these people uh, in journalism sort of come, you know, not standing up for people like Julian Assange and other things like that. I, I just, it just seems like we've really kind of are turning upside down as a society. Yeah. I, my views on where journalism have gone are, are a little complex. I don't, uh, I, I don't think things have gotten worse. I mean, when, uh, when I got into, I remember, I mean, I, I'm old enough now. I'm 63, so I remember the previous journalism era, and I'm. I kind of laugh now. I'll read, especially conservatives will will, will say this a lot when, when social media about the good old days when uh, journalists just stuck to the facts, and then the which is so it's so hilariously idiotic, 
And then, uh, you know, there's this, this idea that these are like the worst of times in journalism, which is, I'm like, wow, that's not the world I grew up in. Uh, when, when I was younger, I wanted to get into journalism. Uh, this was, you know, it was before the internet. It was uh, talk radio was just in its infancy. Um, there wasn't even much of this, you know, this kind of cable news or, or, uh, access, uh, TV type access. You pretty much had the, the newspaper. I remember I, I lived in uh, Des Moines, Iowa at the time, and we had the Gannett newspaper that got delivered to the door in the morning. That was the only, that was the only publication. It was a very liberal newspaper and, um, you didn't have alternatives. If you wanted to get published, um, uh, Aside from there were some magazines out there and things, but but um, locally, that was it. It was the Des Moines Register and I wanted to write for them. And uh, you had to go through their gatekeepers and and it was very hard to get your view out unless you want to, you know, mimeograph a newsletter and hand it out to your neighbors. There, there weren't a lot of choices. So uh, and then the TV news, I mean, you had the three talking heads on the three networks who were all, you know, pretty they, they certainly had a better pretense of of objectivity than you see now but they um they certainly um certainly had a point of view and a lot of things and, and it's funny too because they almost seemed interchangeable i mean you could change the channel right. and it was almost the same stuff no matter what <laughs> right. it was the same stories right so so the same basic stories and then i remember i used to get so mad because there were stories that i thought ought to have been covered and weren't getting covered so uh, then we had this this whole explosion um, of with the with the internet, talk radio, and then all of a sudden, all sorts of views could get aired. And now, now I and I was so naive. I thought that with the internet explosion, that people would seek out uh, good information and and uh, would become much more informed voters. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a uh, it was a great thing. And I'm not saying it is in many ways, but instead, you know, the uh, lowest common denominator seems to seems to rule. Now we see everyone's in their in their new silos. And and sure, the mainstream media is maybe more biased than it had been in that it doesn't have to even pretend to be. Uh, uh, objective, not that there's ever been anything, any, you can't have anything that's objective, but there was no pretense of uh, neutrality now, but you don't have to rely on them. You, you could read anything you want. And that's the problem. Everyone reads whatever they want. So uh, now, you know, I'll, I'll quote, let's say, uh, you know, I, I remember quoting something, a, a pretty well-researched story by the New York Times. And of course, the New York Times has its bias, obviously. But it's still a really well-researched story done to high-level journalism standards. And then people would write into me and say, oh, that's the New York Times. And then they'd send me a video that their Aunt Ethel sent them from some unnamed kook <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and re recording it from their basement as a rebuttal. And, and that's kind of where we've gotten, right? Where now, before, everyone was kind of stuck focusing on, on these narrow choices. And now we could listen, you know, confirmation bias. You could watch, listen, read anything you want. And 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 a lot of like, you know, I, I some of my conservative friends that are always complaining about the mainstream media. I'm like, well, have you looked at the conservative media lately? 
they, they don't even quote, you know, they don't even quote any other viewpoint. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a mess. But I don't think it's like all of a sudden journalists have become different. Um, I think the, the whole media environment has changed. And journalists had always been, you know, they'd always been a, a fairly liberal crowd. That's not a big surprise. I was, uh, I, I worked in newsrooms, editorial pages of newspapers where I was one of the very few non-liberals. Um, but uh, there were standards, though. <laughs> I don't know it, that that's feel, but, Stephen, like, but Stephen, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand your 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 take on on all of this here. Okay, now it is clear, as far as I can tell, that the mainstream media, the so-called mainstream media, have gotten in bed with the government, as far as I can tell. Okay, because every time I turn on the TV, and I'm looking at any one of the mainstream news, I could also look at the talking points coming out of the White House, and it's it's almost one and the same. On the other hand, we have social media, which where you say that we can read, we can listen to or read whatever we want. That is mostly true. But there's a great amount of censorship going on in social media, even though those are private organizations. But some of the, but these social media giants are also in bed with the government, the Democratic-led government. So I don't know how you can make the argument that things have not changed and changed radically in terms of our consumption of news. Uh, and I don't know how we make the argument that journalism itself has not uh, transformed itself into almost an arm of the government. I mean, I'm not talking about every single journalist in America, but I think uh, to a large extent with big media, big tech, they have almost, not quite, but almost become an arm of the government. And I find that frightening but you are making the case that nothing, not very much have changed. Uh, I would like you to just expand on that a little bit because I, I am seeing something totally different. Well, and, and Leon, before you go real quick on uh, Stephen, I wanted to just add on one little thing because uh, you mentioned that the journalists are mostly liberal and I, I, absolutely there's going to be this liberal bias, but it seems to be almost like recently it's changed. The definition of liberal has changed almost. That's kind of what I'm seeing. So I mean, it's even though they're right, so, on the yeah, left, so what the left is has changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so is concern. What is a conservative yeah, now? That's true. Yeah, now um, it, this populist right uh, thing, which doesn't seem a lot like the uh, the certainly the post Reagan conservatism of free markets, and and uh, we've become almost like uh, conservatives have become almost like European style conservatives um, who uh, no longer are trying to conserve the classical liberal experiment of the founders. But look, the, the journalism, I guess my point is, um, you know, journalism is always, it's always been kind of liberal. It's always, it's just wide open now. Right. So, so I'm not dismissing the points you make. I mean, I saw how some of the tech, the tech companies, the platforms, they obviously have their own policies and I think they have a right to have their own policies. They're private organizations, but yeah, they put pressure on, uh, you know, the governments pressured them. But you don't think governments pressured the Washington Post in the past to squelch stories? And and you don't think a lot of what has always passed for journalism is really uh, simpatico with, with what government is one? I've, I've covered it at the local level. And I remember I used to give some of my fellow reporters a hard time. I'm like, 
dude, that is not a scoop. That is called a press release. It's, it's, <laughs> not, it's not a scoop. The city manager fed you that. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, what do you think? And and now, you know, on, the, on you know, maybe reinforcing your point is, um, you know, the number of journalists out there doing original reporting has, has is certainly at the local or regional newspaper level has fallen dramatically. Yes. Um, I, and I remember we had uh, the Orange County Register in its heyday. There were 10 or 11 of us just on the editorial page. And uh, now, you know, you, you, you don't see those kind of numbers on editorial pages. And um, it's, it's, uh, and the newsrooms have been obliterated. Um, so um, the, the, the number of, uh, gosh, the newspaper I work, I have one newspaper I worked at in the past, when I worked there, it was, a, they had a big new building and a small town, there must have been 100 people working there. And now I think they're in a small office somewhere with a handful of people. And same thing with the big journalism enterprises uh, went from hundreds of reporters to dozens of reporters. Uh, so if you don't have reporters covering city council meetings and board of supervisor meetings, you don't uh, you don't know what's um, you know, you don't know what's going on and people don't know what's going on. So, yes, the journalism, it's not just bias. It's it's just a lack of resources and a lack of coverage. And there's so many agencies and so many government entities to cover, and we have less of that coverage. And in its place, we're seeing a lot of just, it's just pure opinion journalism. And 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 a lot of, uh, and, and it's not, you know, the main, the, the public, the circulation numbers on the mainstream newspapers, I don't even know how to, how to, um, measure them anymore we used to measure just printed newspapers that were delivered and now they try to measure eyeballs but the circulation levels have just fallen they've just cratered yeah. so yeah. those people who are railing against the mainstream media they're um certainly uh uh, uh you know forgetting the fact that the mainstream media is is just a, it's just a shadow of what it once was and in its place are all these different, I think, politically motivated publications that have really strong points of view, many of them on the right and a lot of them on the left. And I read a lot of those things and I don't even see what I think would would I've had a lot of reporters work for me over the years. And I, I read these stories. I'm like, these aren't these aren't news stories. There's no effort to, uh, you know, talk to the other side or hash things out. It's just they're just basically glorified opinion pieces. And and you see now you'll see articles where uh, uh, publications will report on somebody's tweet. So it's gotten. <laughs> uh, but but on the other hand, on the other hand, it used to be hard to get all the underlying documents. And now uh, you can watch the city council meetings uh after the fact or, or, or live streaming, you can watch them on video. You get all the reports, right? All the staff reports. You read the court cases of, of the stories. There's so much really valuable, um, you know, uh, uh, information that you couldn't get easily before. I mean, before I used to, have, you'd have to run to the courthouse or do a public records request for some of these things. And now it's all at our, it's, it's, you know, it's all at our hands. And, and, and yet with all this availability, it's like the meme goes, we spend all our time posting videos of cats and 
And I love cats, by the way, and I spend more time than I should watching cat videos, but all the same, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, sponsored by Friskies. Let me just ask something here. Let me ask, let me ask a question here, okay, that maybe could highlight the, the point I am trying to make. Okay, it is true. The free press is, is constitutionally protected, and, and they should be. And nobody's arguing that point. The problem is that that free press being constitutionally protected means that we should be looking at the creation of a marketplace of ideas where things are competing. So, yes, somebody might want to post something about a cat, but somebody might want to post something else about a dog. Somebody might want to post something about libertarian politics. Somebody want to post something about democratic politics and on and on. The whole idea is that the marketplace of ideas was supposed to be, we are supposed to be out there and they all, all these ideas are competing and the best ideas will survive. And that's how, how theoretically it should be. The problem is though, when there are major components within functioning within that whole marketplace or that marketplace of ideas are getting in bed with the government, which is a potential problem, like big tech, like big tech taking some of its orders from the government. I mean, the FBI was heavily involved with Twitter. Oh. Let let, let, let me jump in real quick with uh, one thought, because it was something that dovetails right to what you're saying. But uh, specifically, like you were talking so much about, uh, Stephen, how easy it or how, I guess, how hard it used to be to get the actual information and uh, the the real legwork. But when we look at something like the Hunter Biden laptop story, I mean, literally, it was just kind of teed up there. The New York Post had it out there. Very good example. And it was like, what? It was like nobody really wanted to even inquire about it. I mean, and, sort of like, you know, and, and the government was just sort of telling everybody, oh, don't worry, that's Russian propaganda. And, and the media and, and almost as a whole just said, oh, okay, it's Russian propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I want to add something to that point. That point you're making, Jason, that's a very good point to raise. But I want to add something to that. You know, there's good data to suggest that if the Hunter Biden laptop was allowed to be in that marketplace of ideas, it might have changed. It might have. I know. I cannot say with certainty. It might have changed the outcome of the elections. So the suppression of that, the suppression of that laptop, actually changed the direction of this country. Well, I see that as a real I mean, problem. That's true about it. I mean, I remember the um, in the days of the um, you know the good old days when uh, when there were. Uh, uh, during past elections, when the, there was this huge effort to suppress stories, and 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 the, and the we were totally dependent on these three networks. And I remember when Dan Quayle, you know, misspelled potato. I mean, that was a big deal at the time. Now we have now now we all shrug when you know you've got a former president, maybe the next president, who makes weird suggestions about executing a Joint Chief of Staff member. And uh, he actually, uh, you know, tried to steal an election right before our eyes, and 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 not nothing he says. Get, you know, it's that's just life. I mean, it's human beings. Human beings work in media institutions. Governments have too much power, and they pressure media institutions. Um, and and then you've got all these ideologues out there on the left and right who are just pushing talking points. Yeah, of course, any. All sorts of different stories could have changed changed the, the 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 outcome of any election. I mean, that's what you know. That's that's the way life works. I'm not def- I'm not defending. I don't think the government should be pressuring 
private media organizations, but, you know, it's nothing new. I mean, remember the Pentagon Papers, for heaven's sake. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, this is not anything new. You don't think the Nixon White House tried to, uh, uh, try to put the cap on uh, the Watergate story? I mean, this is always that. You don't think the Trump administration uh, tried to shut things down? It, it, it's what we need is a vibrant media uh, environment. And what we have now is, I don't know what, I don't even know how to explain it, but I think there's too much focus on just the mainstream media. There's so much of everything out there. A lot of what I see, I don't think is good. Um, and, um, but there's, yeah, I, I don't know. There's no magical fix, but the idea that we have fewer choices and the media is uh, more control than it ever has been seems that seems hard for me to take because I remember the limited options that we had. And, uh, and then you talk about, I mean, and some of this is just ideological, right? I mean, Fox news strikes me as, you know, a lot of it seems like state run TV, but it's not being directed by anyone. It's just, that's the viewpoint of the people who run the network and MSNBC seems the same way right so um well, it's it, it just so that with all this twitter files stuff that we did start oh. hearing about it did seem like you know government well of course like you're saying government sure. was probably strong arming the big networks back and at we're the time. reading about it now yeah. right i mean yeah. we're you know it's 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 uh remember in in the past and i'm not trying to you know i'm not trying to defend anything that you're pointing out or anything that's happening now but in the past things really would just get suppressed and there were very few other ways to hear about them. Yeah. I mean, when, when you had three networks and um, no talk radio, no internet, three networks and the daily newspaper, if your editor at the very liberal daily newspaper, most likely in the town that you lived in, chose not to put that on the front page or anywhere in the paper, where would you hear about it? Yeah. You, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Okay. The problem is, you know, it's a consumer driven thing. And, and what happens when, you know, I don't know, like in anything, we all know the restaurant down the street that offers really delicious, healthy, good quality food. And you got people like me who, who prefer, uh, you know, the fried chicken joint and the, and the greasy burger joint. I mean, you, you know, you can't force people to go eat a healthy meal. You can't force them to 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 want to go and read the city council minutes. I mean, I've watched you know Cowper's hearings. I, you know, talk about. I guess I need a life, but you know, I'll watch those things, and it's amazing the the information that you see if you're willing to. Uh, but but most people are not. You know, it's it's the libertarian thing, rational ignorance, right? How much time are you going to spend learning about? CalPERS, when it, it has very little influence on your life, even though broadly speaking, it has a lot of influence on 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 the state budget and those sort of things. Well, which is a great reason to keep government small so that we don't have to spend much of our time worrying about well, what yeah, the Yeah, it should be but... so small we shouldn't care who the president is, but you exactly. know, that creates left the station. 
Yeah, but but when you were talking about CalPERS, that's a great segue. And unfortunately, we're going to have to probably try and squeeze it a little because we've gone so far over on other stuff. But um, you, know, you wrote a book called Plunder, and it was uh, James. Can you pu pull up the visual? And it's how public employee unions are raiding the treasuries, controlling our lives, and bankrupting the nation. And certainly, we've seen the power of these unions within California, the, especially the, the public employees unions. It's, it's a, you know, living in Sacramento, you can't, you, you can't not know somebody who doesn't have a family member or who isn't themselves working for government and somehow tied into all this. So, uh, but um, you know, certainly unions uh, are having a huge impact on, on the, the state and the country, but m mostly, uh, you know, governance because of all of these, uh, uh, you know, at the state level, all of these union members who are, you know, into, they have pensions, most of the jobs are getting, you know, more and more stuff is getting shifted toward union uh, uh, work within government. And, um, and so it's creating a, a big problem with the public pension. So this is a 2019 thing where uh, uh, the um, PPIC uh, was essentially showing the um, unfunded liabilities are starting to get out of control with the, uh, you know, uh, the pensions here in, in California. And um, this here is an article from uh, the Center Square that's talking about uh, California. Um, we have a, a $1.5 trillion uh, public pension debt load, which you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure what, what that means, but essentially it's a few years later on that whole uh, uh, um, PPIC report, and the problem's gotten bigger. Uh, and is there any end in sight? It almost seems like we're we're headed toward a Titanic collapse here in California that may be, steer, be being steered by the, the pensions. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of this, Stephen, uh, especially since you've, uh, you, you wrote a book on this uh, is a little more than a decade ago, I think now, but um, it's, uh, are, are we closer to collapse, I guess, <laughs> than we were back it, when you wrote it? It, this? Has, it hasn't gotten better, that's for sure. Well, it, it, it you know, it's totally tied to the, uh, you know, the pension debt and what's going to happen is tied to uh, stock market returns. And uh, we're basically the pension funds uh, make a guess on uh, on on, on uh, future re returns, paying for the current uh, benefits and the benefits for future retirees. So I, I think CalPERS, the largest pension fund in the country, is funded at, I think, in the 70 something percent which means it has 70% of the money available to make good on all the promises that it's made. I think uh, there have been efforts in the whole pension reform issue back in 2011, 2012. It was a big thing back when the state had a budget crisis and a number of events. Um, there was a confluence of events and concerns about the pension systems and then um, uh, what, what we saw where there were efforts at reform, Jerry Brown signed PEPRA, the Public Employees Pension Re uh, Reform Act, which modestly trimmed pensions and uh, different cities like San Diego passed a pension reform. And then this uh, the state agency essentially killed it. Uh, the California rule, which is basically it's not even a rule. It's just called the California rule. It's a series of court interpretations says that you cannot reduce pensions 
or any benefits for public employees going forward unless you give them something of equal value. So that killed the reform in San Jose. Uh, the legislature is not going to touch it because they're owned essentially by the uh, public employee unions. I mean, the public employee unions have exorbitant power there. Uh, so nothing's going to happen. Pensions are a senior obligation of the state. That means if everything collapses, they're the first thing to get paid. So we'll have public employees uh, living up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, enjoying themselves, even if the state collapses. We have something called crowd out. Pen cities are paying so much in pensions that it's crowding out all these other public services. If you really want to blow your mind, go to Transparent California and, and look at what some of these public employees earn and receive in pensions. And you'll see police sergeants, five, six, $700,000 a year. Uh, there's the 3% of 3% of 50 retirement benefits. So they retire uh, with 90% of their final year's pay. Uh, it's just, it's just amazing. The amount of, of greed and, and uh, the, the, the unions just have been able to rig all the rules in their favor so that uh, the kind of pay, you know, when, when you hear uh, policymakers complain that we can't hire enough police or whatever it is, take a look at what they're paying, the current ones and the retirees. There's this shadow workforce of retirees. So it's not, the, it's a mess. It's driven by union power. Public employees get outrageous, uh, especially in the public safety segment. Uh, you know, you, you, your typical firefighter in California total compensation package is what two twenty five something north of there. Um, you have cities where they're making three hundred thousand dollars a year. You have captains making twice that in some cases. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, we're, we're not saying you don't pay someone a fair wage, but it's crazy, and no wonder we don't have any money. And the system, it's not going to get fixed. No one is going to touch that. No, and Republicans, as I pointed out earlier, when it comes to the law enforcement and, and firefighting unions, they're closely allied with them. And, and they're the ones that get the, the largest uh, pay, pay and, and pension packages. So, so nothing will happen and, and don't, and nothing's going to, as long as they can kick the can down the road, nothing's going to happen. Never underestimate the ability of California legislators to kick the can down the road and, and tweak it just enough. Enough that it, things don't collapse. So don't sit around waiting for a collapse. Not that that well, would be good. And, and, and there's a real consequence to some of this too, because they're saying this eats into the money that can be used for other services. Mm -hmm. um, so like when yeah. they're paying all these people to essentially do nothing in retirement for many, many years, then that's that's I, there, there was a funny meme I remember seeing uh, where it shows like about six or, or about 10 construction people standing around. There's one guy in the hole and he's digging really hard. And the other guys are all standing around drinking coffee, looking down at him. And then it says, oh, due to budget cuts, we're going to have to fire Joe. And the guy's name in the hole is Joe because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, it's well, like, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it is, you know, crowding out things. I mean, it's crowding out all the many services that uh, other that people think they're getting from government. And um, yeah, because you're paying so much and, and then they're retiring at age 50. I had this debate with this uh, PolitiFact actually quoted me on one of these stories where one of these police union uh chiefs said that, oh, well, the reason we get such big uh, pensions is because 
uh, we die two to three years after we retire. And then I went through the CalPERS data and the Oregon uh, OSERS data from our Oregon and actually the longest living um, uh, public employee are police and firefighters, firefighters first <laughs> police. They live into their mid eighties. That's why we have a pension problem. I wish everyone a long, healthy, happy, and prosperous life, but let's not, let's not make things up. Right. And then PolitiFact actually did a big false on that guy's statement after I provided him with all the data. <laughs> so they'll say, Eddie, they'll say all sorts of things to justify these crazy pensions. I mean, do you really think people ought to be earning $200,000 a year at age 50, and then they're going to live to be 85. And, yeah. and, and so that money comes from somewhere, it comes from the pension fund, but their pension funds are underfunded. Um, it's, it's, it's a system designed by the people who benefit from the system. And that's the whole problem with public sector unions is, and, and my book was only about public sector unions, not private unions, which are different. They have their own problems, but it's a totally different animal. Yes. In the private sector, you can't kill the host. Well, you can. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I saw them do that. But <laughs> if you if you do kill the host, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. hurt. Here, there's at least a little moral hazard. <laughs> a little moral hazard. The unions here elect the people that they then negotiate with. I, exactly. I that is a major. That's a that's a major point you're making there, and that's a major corruption that is going that is ongoing. So, well, I remember. Look, yeah, yeah, that's the problem, right? I remember seeing in in. It, there was a report in, uh, in 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 Orange County after the um, after there was a deal to boost the salary for for public employees. The head of the union and the head of negotiations for representing taxpayers supposedly were seen at a Santa Ana restaurant splitting a bottle of champagne. I thought to me that's the picture of what's going on here. Exactly, exactly. Nobody, nobody. Now we the taxpayers. Now full disclosure, I'm a I'm a retired public employee. Okay, full, I full gathered employee. that when you said you worked for the state. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it. I wasn't going to tease you about it, but you mentioned it. So no, in no. Sacramento, you can't even have a libertarian show without no. somebody. <laughs> Yes. Imagine that. Imagine Everything's that. distorted. Everything's distorted, Everything's distorted. in California. <laughs> <laughs> Even libertarians. <laughs> Even libertarians got stuck, get sucked into, in, in, into this damn nonsense. But just in my full disclosure, I was forced to pay union dues, okay? Forced. I really mean that. Force of law. Until, the, um, until uh, 2018, I think, or something like that. Uh, something like that. But 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 the whole point is though. But the whole point is though. I I think here, you just pointed to me, pointed to the major problem that we see with public employees and and uh, public employee unions, I should say. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this very point about the dangers of public employee unions because it can change the direction of the sovereign, the sovereign being the the, the government in the, in the, in his in his speech. The thing is, though, the thing is that in these negotiations, when the the unions help elect the politicians, and they and then they end up negotiating with these same people, no one is really representing the taxpayer who is paying the bill. Nobody's representing them, and this is a real problem. This is a major corruption that is ongoing, and this speaks directly to the problems that you are pointing out in your book. 
plunder. I've never read the book, but based upon what you're saying here, I can see I can see this very problem being highlighted. Well, it's it's funny too. They they use, uh oh, oh sorry. Oh, I, I was I was just gonna say, and, and they, they wind up getting the money from the uh, essentially the 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 government through the employees who they argue for a better pay for, and then they essentially take those fees out and use that to re lobby against the same people that they're negotiating <laughs> yes. with. So <laughs> just you know, and and help fund their campaigns and stuff. Yeah, so uh, yeah. um, and, and not just it's fund their campaigns, cool. but it sounds like they are, are really um, critical in in going after people they don't like too. It's not necessarily being for someone. It's being um, not being on their hate list, I guess, is it's <laughs> a big yeah. issue. I mentioned earlier the, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, effort to the legislature passed a law to stop cities from doing what Calamesa did, which was to, and, and also uh, Placentia, they created their own fire departments to get out from under uh, the CalPERS uh, pension requirements. And then, so then the legislature uh, passed a law so that no other city can do that. So, so they're not just boosting their their own benefits and pay. They're they're shutting down alternatives. And um, you know, a union controlled uh, PERB, the Public Employment Relations Board, a state agency that's very union friendly, shut down um, the San Diego initiative that would have reformed pensions by claiming that. Um, the right to meet and confer supersedes the right of voters to have a say. Um, so, so the whole the whole system is rigged from top to bottom. My argument a couple of years ago was let, we lost. You know, we tried. We tried since for 10 years to reform pensions uh, through voter initiatives, through uh, legislative action, through the courts. And we've lost up and down. So uh, we tried. There's, you know. Just uh, we lost, so now they're. Um, what, what can you do? So, so. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you see uh, there being a potential, you know, collapse? Because I know in the past we talked about, uh, or I mean, we've heard about some of these cities going through bankruptcy, you know, because of their uh, all of the debt obligations they had, and some of those big part of those being pensions and 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 pay. And and I, I mean, do you, do you think we're headed that way with uh, the whole state, or or maybe some cities, or? No, the state cities could could. I mean, I covered the Stockton bankruptcy, which was driven in part by uh, pensions and uh, uh, their uh, medical care, where you work for the city for two months and you have lifetime medical care and the redevelopment agencies. But yeah, I, municipalities could indeed, you know, go bankrupt uh, at, at some point. But uh, nothing's about to collapse or anything. I uh, yeah, I, I was on a. Uh, it was on Fox News show, and I remember the. Uh, this was a number of years ago, back when California had its had its uh, financial problems, and the host was pushing me to tell him when California is going to go bankrupt. I'm like, it's not going to go bankrupt. States can't go bankrupt, and it's not going to go bankrupt. And he didn't seem to like that, but I, I, I don't. I, 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 they're not, <laughs> and most cities are not going to go bankrupt. They're just going to slowly uh, erode services. And and that's what's going to happen because um, you know there's a it's it's not beneficial for city officials to have a 
a bankruptcy, but it's also uh, it's it's it whatever they they can. So we're just going to see kind of a slow erosion for now for mm-hmm. the foreseeable future. So and so those erosions yeah. will be so like I'm maybe... not a big believer in waiting. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. I think maybe we're having a, some slow. Yes, yeah, so I'm not a big believer in waiting for things to collapse and all of a sudden people see the light. When does that happen? I mean, look at Detroit, right? I mean, every, people would say, well, things will get so bad that people will uh, finally see the light. And, um, you know, has that happened in Detroit? Or No, it didn't. It, <laughs> it did not happen. <laughs> so um, anyway, it's just, uh, it, but we just keep pointing out the problem. Uh, at some point, you know, going back to what I said when we started this, at some point, um, you know, we, we we put forward positive solutions. And at some point when the time's right, maybe someone will listen because they have no choice to I have no choice, yeah. meaning that if they don't, things will be worse than if they do what we say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, essentially uh, getting to like one hour police response times and other things like that. I mean, those are all consequences of spending so much money in some places that you don't mm-hmm. have it for the actual services people are demanding at the, at the moment. But um, well, I, I guess we're, we're getting uh, oh, we've gone over the hour. And so um, we, we had wanted to talk about ESG as well. But I'm going to uh, kick that since uh, um, I don't want to yeah, do it time anymore. Time. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I did want to get to the knucklehead noise patrol. This will be real quick, but uh, um, so James, maybe you could bring up the visual. This just kind of underscores kind of the craziness of u- unions. And this is a, uh, a union president of the uh, CTU, the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, and she had called, uh, you know, uh, uh, essentially private schools fascist and racist and was t- completely trying to kill school choice uh, reforms that were headed that way. And it came out and this was uh uh back in uh august of 2022 she was she was telling people that hey look i'm one of you i send my kids to your uh to these public schools and all that uh and then it, it we found out that no she's actually sending her son to a private school but can you uh, roll the uh, video real quick james uh, uh it's a pretty short video of her talking about uh and we're mothers uh, and we send our children to the chicago public schools and remember we live next door to you So we work, we live next door to you. We're raising our families in the same neighborhoods. Think about who we are. And and who they are is not who they say they are because uh, it turned out that uh, there was a scandal. Her son is in fact going to a a public uh, or private school because they they couldn't offer the services she wanted in the public school. (laughs) Her son couldn't play soccer. Go figure. (laughs) She said she said her son could go to go to the private school so he could live out his dreams. Uh, That's what she said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, no one else has dreams either. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't begrudge I don't begrudge her for sending for giving her son the best opportunity possible. What I do begrudge and what I'm disgusted at is her hypocrisy in doing so. I am a parent <clears throat> myself, and I would do the best I could for my children and my grandson. But don't don't be a damn hypocrite jumping up and down about oh public school and school choices racist and school choices this what about all of the black and brown kids in chicago who can't live out their dreams too because they are stuck they are stuck in these rotten this national disgrace 
of what we call public education. What about those people? They don't have dreams too, right? I guess not. No soccer for them. <laughs> no soccer for them. Of course not. Jeez. So, well, I, I think that's that, that, that reaches us to about the end of the show. And Stephen, did you have any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with, uh, you know, about journalism, what you're doing, uh, any new, new projects, anything? I think Leon's final thought is a good ending point. <laughs> we, we, we respect her as a parent for making the right decision, but why can't other parents have that same decision? It's the hypocrisy. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think that the overall thing is when we uh, invoke government, we wind up really limiting ourselves, all of us on our decisions. And that, that's the whole point. Right. I mean, it's that, you know, you, you, you put this public school system in and make it unionized and suddenly you are limiting everybody's choices. It's sort of a one size fits all. But that said, uh, we reached the end of the show and uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank you, Stephen, for, for being our guest today. Um, so hopefully our our audience has gotten a lot out of that. And thank uh, our audience as well for joining us for this conversation. Uh, I encourage you to go online and check us out on um, <clears throat> on Rumble, YouTube, Spotify, and Facebook. Uh, just look for uh, knuckleheadsofliberty.com where you can find us talking to uh, people like Stephen and others who are fighting for liberty across the country and in your region. And before the next show, think about what you can do in your region to make a difference too. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for joining us again. And until next time, stay tuned and stay free. Yes, indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness always and forever. Thank you for listening to the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. Find us on Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, your favorite podcast network, and at knuckleheadsofliberty.com.